Hey, what's up, everybody? Welcome to the Hotshot Wake Up. This is your weekly wildfire update. Thanks for tuning in. I'm not in my usual space for recording my podcast, so if you hear a little echo, I'm out in Montana. I'm going to visit Bridger Aerospace for their open house and then might shoot over to Missoula for a little bit, and then I'm headed back to my home, but I'm currently in an open space, so it might sound a little different than usual, but again, thanks for tuning in. Alberta, Canada is basically nuking off the face of the earth. They had a bunch of lightning coming through the area, tremendous amount of new starts, tens of thousands moving towards hundreds of thousands of acres. They've had nearly 20,000 people evacuated up to this point, and it's very, very extreme fire behavior that's happening up in Alberta. Not any relief planned in the near future. British Columbia is looking at having some fire weather here in the future. So we'll cover all of that. I'll cover what's going on in New Mexico and Arizona currently. Nothing major. A couple thousand acre fires, 1,200 acre fires. But a lot of them are coming under containment at this point in time. And out of the Coronado, they had that individual they were looking for who was shooting incendiary rounds that started the wildfire. And ultimately, at this point in time, they say they got the guy. Ladies and gentlemen, we got him. But before we get into all that, let's briefly talk about an article that we put out a couple months ago of the tanker crash that took place in Australia. We put that article out on the Substack. Amazingly, the pilots walked away from this. They, From the sounds of the report, they kind of bounced off or ricocheted off of a ridgeline and then impacted again before basically tearing the aircraft apart, coming to a halt, and the pilots were able to extricate themselves out of a passenger window and then were picked up by a helicopter and taken to a local hospital. Pretty traumatic crash. It's, again, unbelievable that these folks survived this thing. But they put out a preliminary report. They do kind of reference a animation that they use in the video, but basically it's just an animation of the plane making the drop or attempting the drop before skimming the ridgeline, ultimately shedding a bunch of debris, engine debris, wing debris, and then skipping off the ground again before coming to a rest. I wanted to just close that out and at least get this preliminary report out for folks who are listeners and remember this article we put out. It was kind of a big deal. So we'll go through that and then we'll cover everything that's going on up in Canada and in the southwest of the United States. The ATSB has published a preliminary report into its ongoing investigation into the collision with terrain of a Boeing 737 large air tanker while conducting a firefighting task in the Fitzgerald River National Park in Western Australia. In the afternoon of 6th of February 2023, the large air tanker, call sign Bomber 139, departed from Bustleton Airport with two pilots on board to the location of a fire near Hopeton, about 600 kilometres southeast of Perth. This animation has been developed from data obtained during the investigation and is for illustrative purposes only. It is not to be used for further analysis. This animation was produced by Flight Recorder Data and shows the final moments of the flight ending at impact. At the time of the collision, the aircraft was in the process of conducting a second aerial retardant drop, which was extending an existing line downslope. As the animation progresses towards the collision, you can see the throttles advance and the engines accelerate just before the aircraft strikes the ridgeline with the stick shaker activating. Shedding engine, wing and fuselage debris, the aircraft impacted the ground a second time, sliding to rest about 176 metres from the ridgeline, yawing left to the direction of travel. 
The fuselage had a main fracture near the tail. The left engine had separated from the pylon and was resting adjacent to the fuselage. With the captain observing a post-impact fire had started, both pilots then exited via the left cockpit window and moved clear of the wreckage and fire. The pair were subsequently rescued by a helicopter involved in the fire control activities with only minor injuries. The aircraft was consumed by fire and destroyed. With the arrival of ATSB investigators at the accident site, the cockpit voice recorder and the flight data recorder were recovered and transported back to the ATSB's Canberra technical facilities for download. As a result of fire damage to both recorders, the data recovery process required disassembly, inspection and repair of memory boards by the ATSB's recorder specialists. Following repairs to both memory boards, successful downloads of data were achieved, with the flight data recorder providing about 25 hours of flight data and the cockpit voice recorder about 30 minutes of audio on four channels. Information from those recorders, interviews with the flight crew, a drone-generated 3D map of the accident site and other recorded flight information will be instrumental to the ongoing investigation as the ATSB works to determine findings and develop a final report. You can read the preliminary report by searching AO-2023-008 on the ATSB's website or from the link below in the description. So it looks like they're trying to just piece this all together. They do have the flight recorder data and the initial report from that data shows that they were in on a second drop of retardant and something happened and they skimmed the ground kind of pulled up a little bit and then ended up skidding to a halt before extricating themselves from the aircraft and a helicopter coming and picking them up and bringing them to the local hospital. I'll be following this report because I'm curious what did happen and how these folks got into trouble on this approach before their drop. And ultimately, was it an aircraft failure, a pilot failure, from the sounds of it, it was one of the most experienced pilots with the company who was flying this aircraft at the time. So just off of that information, I would have to think to myself that it's less likely that it's pilot error and more likely mechanical failure. But we don't know that until the entire investigation's out. I just wanted to share that with folks because... It was a big deal. It was with Neptune Aviation, who was flying that aircraft at the time. And I think the follow-up was worthwhile. There was another aviation accident. Again, we wrote about it on Substack. There was a Type 3 helicopter that crashed just yesterday trying to help out in Alberta, Canada, outside of the town of Edson. And this helicopter, again, amazing footage. You can find it again on the Substack or my Twitter and basically, they come in to the airport to set down and something happens. They come in way too hot. The aircraft hits the ground. The skids collapse underneath the weight of the helicopter and then it rolls. Again, amazingly, the pilot walked away from this thing, taken to the hospital. Seems like minor injuries at this point in time, but... Like I said, the footage is incredible. It's a bunch of locals up in Alberta that videotaped this thing, and they were shocked as I would be if I saw a helicopter crash right in front of me, but they got great footage, and it just goes to show that these things happen. We've talked about it at length, both here on the podcast and writing about it on the Substack, that aviation 
crashes with wildfires have increased significantly in just the last year. We had those crashes in Spain, Greece, down in South America, multiple crashes. And last year in the United States, we had some crashes. This time last year, maybe a little bit after these dates, there was also that helicopter crash that ended in a fatality up in Alaska. That happened to be a Canadian pilot and was kind of a mess from the people that I talked to who were there on the ground when it happened and just the way it was handled. And I'm not here to point fingers and say someone did this wrong or someone did this wrong, but it's just what I'm hearing from folks on the ground. It just wasn't maybe handled the best way, a tragedy through and through. But the whole point here being that aviation aviation crashes have been on the increase, and it's definitely something that I'm watching very, very closely. That's why I followed up on that Australia tanker crash And now again, like I said yesterday, a helicopter crashed while working outside of Edson, Alberta on these fires. Now let's get into what's happening up in Canada. They had a massive lightning system come through, multiple, multiple new starts. This is just yesterday, 46 new starts. They have 249 active fires, 771 fires year to date, and 350,000 acres already burned this spring. That's a good chunk, and we'll see how these fires in Alberta go. There's a lot of folks saying that maybe a weather system will come through and they'll get a little bit of rain before the summer kicks off. But looking at the helicopter footage that I've posted, the tankers coming in, and just the photos that we've been seeing from the ground, these are true monsters. These are massive wildfires burning tens of thousands of acres. Like we said at the top of the show, almost 20,000 people have been evacuated so far up in Canada. And it's just a really, really big deal. Talking to the folks on the ground in Canada, the other thing that they're saying is, like the United States, they're still waiting for their main fire crews to come on. They're short-staffed. They as well have had some retention and recruitment issues, specifically over the last two and a half years. So they're just playing catch up and they're trying to get people on to try to wrangle these things in. But it looks like these things are going to burn for a little while. In the United States, it's still a preparedness level one. We'll probably see that for a little while until another region starts to pop off a little bit, whether it's the Southwest or region four, maybe California here in a month or two. But the Southern area is at a preparedness level two. The Great Lakes Fire in North Carolina, they still have that at 32,400 acres, but it's 70% contained. $4.5 million at this point in time for that cost. But that fire is basically wrapped up at this point in time. The Sandy Fire in the Big Cypress National Preserve, that's burned over 3,300 acres. It looks like a fun little fire. Lots of aviation moving in, lots of burning happening to try to lock that thing in with crews. So far, $420,000 on that one. A couple other spattering fires here and there in Florida. Texas had a couple small ones. The Sand Dunes fire was 347 acres, but really no threat at that point in time. Mississippi had some small fires in Oklahoma. Again, flying under the radar, but still nothing massive. A couple thousand acre fires, 1,300 acre fires. The eastern area, we wrote about this again when we talked about the Predictive services maps that came out, basically Canada was red across the board, but a little bit of a surprise was seen Minnesota and Wisconsin, but I drove through northern Minnesota to get out to Bozeman where I am now, 
and it was dry. They had a ton of snow, record snowfall in a lot of parts of these states, but it's dried out fairly quickly. The eastern area is at a preparedness level two as well. There's this Berg fire that happened up in Minnesota in Middle River. That was almost 1,800 acres, which is kind of surprising at this point in time. And if it dries out a little bit more and they're expecting some warm weather, you might see some larger fires kick off in northern Minnesota and Wisconsin. One of the subscribers to the Substack sent me some footage of some burns that were happening out in Minnesota. Beautiful, beautiful prescribed fire. And I'll post those to the socials as well so everybody can take a look at them. But they're doing some good work up there. There's also the Highway 59 fire in Minnesota, 320 acres. They had the Southeast Thief fire, which was in Gradsky, Minnesota, 1,300 acres, total cost of 15000 The most expensive one in Minnesota was ninety k. That was for that Berg fire. And then they also had this Pearson fire near Madison, Minnesota, 400 acres. So it just goes to show that there's activity out there. And it will only increase at this point in time until a significant amount of rain falls going into the summer. If you move to the southwest area, they are at a preparedness level two as well. So multiple areas at a PL2. So we might see a national PL2 sooner than later at this point in time. They had this park fire in New Mexico, 700 acres. They brought an aviation, couple hotshot crews to try to take care of that. The big tank fire, 900 acres. They're getting containment around that. That was in the Las Vegas district of New Mexico. They had this marsh fire. 1,600 acres. That thing's totally contained at this point in time. They had an Antelope Flats fire at 1,000 acres, and just today they had a new start called the Sheep Fire. They did say over the radio that there was a half-mile spotting or maybe it was a quarter-mile spotting on this fire, but they did catch it. But that's just an indicator to me that we're going to see fires get more and more active and it's showing that already down in New Mexico. Yes, they are catching these things, but they are getting to that 1,300, 1,200 acre range before they get these things totally wrapped. Other than that, there's a fire in Nebraska, the Natick fire, 2,200 acres, cost of $150,000. They ordered the San Juan hotshots out of Colorado, but from what I'm hearing, they got canceled halfway to that fire. Not 100% sure if they got turned around, if they were brought in for prepo or any sort of staging, but I know they were canceled to that fire. But all that being said, fire weather is coming to the southwest and to the Colorado Rockies area over the next couple of days. Warm weather, high winds, low RHs. So we'll see what comes of that here in the near future. Canada's on watch, which means Alaska's on watch. I wouldn't be surprised if Canada starts calling for some help and then a close eye is being kept on Alaska to see if they have any red flags approaching as they move deeper into their spring fire season. We're not going 100 miles an hour yet in the United States. Definitely in Alberta they are. They're trying to gather some resources to help with that fight. But the 18-day forecast came out saying above average temperatures streaking across the United States in the next two weeks and... Whether that means more fire or not, it tells me that things are going to dry out, things are going to get warmer, that snowpack is going to melt, and those fine fuels are going to start to dry out as we push 
deeper into the late spring, pushing into summertime. That's basically the operational update. Let's talk about the suspect who was finally taken into custody for that uh, Molino 2 wildfire in Arizona. This is from KOLD. If you haven't seen the footage, you can find it, again, on the Substack or on my Twitter. I posted it as well. Basically, there's an individual shooting shotgun shells. They are called Dragon Breath Rounds. They are incendiary rounds that you shoot at a target. It was dry. It was warm. It was windy. And these fragments of incendiary material then spread out into the sagebrush and the grass, and it started this fire. They put out a call, them being the Coronado National Forest, to try to find who these individuals were. And it sounds like they did find them. This article says authorities have identified the person suspected of starting the Molino 2 wildfire. The fire started Sunday, April 30th. Happens to be my birthday. Happy birthday to me. And resulted in the closure of the Catalina Highway in the Santa Catalina Ranger District in the Coronado National Forest. It says that there was surveillance footage showed the individual shooting illegal shotgun rounds at the start of the wildfire. Now, saying that it was surveillance footage is kind of strange because it seemed like it was just cell phone footage. So I don't know why they're calling it surveillance footage unless they had a really nice high-definition surveillance camera where these folks were shooting. It says officials from the Coronado National Forest issued a statement saying Coronado National Forest managers and Forest Service law enforcement and investigators expressed their appreciation to the members of the public who provided multiple timely and actionable tips about the identity of the suspect who started the Molino 2 fire. Thanks to the additional information, investigators were able to properly identify, locate, and interview the responsible individual. This case has now been referred to the U.S. Attorney's Office. My guess is they're going to throw the book at this guy, unless maybe he's connected in any sort of way, but the way it looks is he walked away from the scene, which is never a good look, and they had to hunt him down, which they never want to do. They'd appreciate it if you just stay there and give him a heads up that you started a wildfire. So we'll see where that goes. They'll probably hit him with the cost of the fire. I'd be shocked if he got jail time, but we'll follow up and see where that all goes. Up next, we have a must-listen-to interview with J.J. Shelley, who's running a nutrition study for type 1 and type 2 incident meals, compiling that information, trying to publish it in an actual journal, and then passing that information on to the NFFE to bring to Congress and say, hey, look, we don't have adequate nutrition for our firefighters, and we need to change that. So, Stay tuned for that, but I'm going to take this time to thank the paid Substack subscribers. Everything we do happens because of that. I wouldn't be able to do the podcast, any of the articles. It's just so much time and energy to do this stuff. So thank you to the paid Substack subscribers. If you're a first-time listener, we are ad-free. We are sponsorship-free at this point in time in the genesis of the Hotshot Wake Up. And... I'm 100% supported through these paid Substack subscribers. If you'd like to be a part of that, go to thehotshotwakeup.substack.com. Click on subscribe. It's just $6. And again, it supports everything that we do, whether it's the firefighter donations, the giveaways. We have one coming up. We have an outdoor weatherproof pack. It's the nicest on the market currently that you can find. 
and we stuffed it full of honey stinger waffles, pro bars, beef jerky, everything you want when you're out camping or hiking or on a fire, and we're giving that away. Basically, my favorite giveaway that we've done, because now that I have it all packaged up and ready to be sent out, like, I want the thing. It's like, man, I need to get one of these for myself because it's really nice. But how that works is if you're a paid subscriber to the Substack, you're automatically entered into all of our giveaways. We have two chainsaw giveaways every year. The next one's coming up on July 4th. We give away running shoes. We give away boots. We gave away two pairs of boots last year and just all sorts of other random giveaways that we do. And again, we're giving away a pack that's just stuffed with all sorts of hiking and, and camping goodies coming up here on May 12th. So if you want to be a part of that giveaway or anything else that we do, just go to the hotshotwakeup.substack.com, click on subscribe, and again, it's just $6. Thank you. If you're just a paid subscriber to the Substack, thank you as well. You like and subscribe and share what we do, and that gets the word out there and spreads it as well. But consider that paid subscription, again, just $6, and I thank you very, very much. I have traveled this year over all the United States, through the Alleghenies, the White Mountains, and the Catskills, the Rockies and the Bitterroot Mountains, the Cascades, the Coast Range, and the Sierras. I have traveled... I'd like to welcome J.J. Shelley for coming on the show. He's a wildland firefighter, works down in Arizona, and has put together a new study working to find the nutritional value and what hotshots are consuming on type 1 and type 2 incidents. This information is going to be compiled. He's currently looking for more crews to be active in this study, and that information and the study can be provided in the description of the podcast if you want to take part in that. And through this interview, he provides all the information as well of how you can contact him if you want to participate in this. So first off, thank you, JJ, for joining the show. And can you give everybody just kind of a background of where you're coming from and how you got started in this whole study? Yeah. Yeah. So just a quick background on me, um, just give people an idea of where I'm coming from and why I ended up in fire so it kind of starts with me graduating high school back in so I'm, I'm still pretty young i turned 26 tomorrow so i graduated high school in 2015 and about 10 days after that i left for boot camp so i was a marine before this i was in the infantry um and yeah, obviously the lifestyles kind of kind of aligned pretty well so i spent 2015 to 2019 um as an infantryman in the marine corps and deployed a couple times had a great time loved the line of work um and that last two years of it, I spent doing, I was pretty much a logistics chief for our infantry company. So we have like, in the infantry, you don't have um, guys to take care of all that stuff for you. So a lot of us end up with like collateral duties. And mine was essentially to be the logistics chief for the company. So that looked like, you know, me coordinating food and water and, and transportation and allocation of gear and sending equipment from country to country and stuff like that. So I did that for pretty much the last half of my my contract. So that's why I really kind of learned networking and all that stuff and whatnot. So kind of got into that. Um, and then in 2019 was when I was getting out and I didn't want to stay in, but I was trying to figure out what I wanted to do. And I was pretty familiar with wildland firefighting. Um, I knew what it was and being from, I'm from Arizona. 
so being from Arizona, I'm pretty familiar with, uh, wildfires and everything like that. So I reached out to, um, the engine an engine crew on the Tonto national forest in the Mesa ranger district. So reached out to them and I think I took like a weekend off and, uh, right around this time in 2019, they took me on board. So I ended up, that was my first season back in 19 on an engine crew. It was a type six and yeah, man, I really loved it. You know, I loved the line of work. And for me, it was a great transition from coming out of the Marine Corps to something that was really similar. And something I found was that the people were also really similar. So I loved working with the, the guys and gals at the station and the line of work and, and everything about it was appealing to me. So I stuck around for 2019 and 2020. Um, 2020 for us, like everybody else, was super busy. So I think we had like about 60 fires on the district. We had two or three team fires on the district alone. So it was real, real busy for us. Um, and then, you know, after that season, something, you know, like kind of popped off in me and I really just wanted to go back to school and long story short, man, like it's kind of, kind of weird, but my long-term goal is to be an astronaut. And that sounds a bit like far-fetched and it'll all make sense hopefully in a little bit. But, uh, so yeah, man, long-term goal. That's, that's kind of what it is. Um, and so I decided to go back to school and with the military, with the Marine Corps, um, I'm sure you guys are all pretty familiar with the GI bill and how it works. So essentially like I, if I want to go to school and I get accepted to go to school, then they pay for it. So I was like, well, why not just use this free ticket to like move to Alaska? So I took everything and packed everything up and moved to Alaska and went to school up there. And I was kind of trying to figure out what I wanted to do. Was this still in 2020? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Sorry, it was 2020. So it was December of 2020 is when I decided to move up. So after that fire season, I had all my money saved up and everything like that. So I just kind of packed it up and went on up. Um, and yeah, so I was trying to figure out like how I wanted to do it. So to be an astronaut, there's a few different like approaches you can take. And essentially, you either be like a test pilot or you go get your master's and PhD and do a bunch of research. And uh kind of kind of find your niche to win over and and uh go from there. So there's a few different ways you can do it. And I was trying to figure out what I wanted to do and eventually came upon nutrition and looked back on everything that I had done in like the Marine Corps and firefighting and realized that wow, I never put the focus on nutrition or food or really giving myself like a good ed- like advantage with food and stuff like that. So I started to get into that and then I realized like how big of an impact that would have. And so that's what ended up bringing me back down here from Alaska um, was food. So I ended up coming back down recently. Uh, I moved back down here in August, and I am currently back on an engine on the Mesa Ranger District. Um, And the reason I came down was specifically to address firefighter nutrition. So one of the things I think you're pretty familiar with, and you actually did it on your show recently, you talked about it, was the current state of uh, firefighter nutrition and catering and all that stuff. Um, so I realized that there's kind of a, an issue there with just providing guys the right nutrition and stuff like that. So that kind of led me to doing what I'm doing now and working with firefighters on nutrition. So let's dive into that. You're working on this study to track the caloric intake and the nutritional value of these meals that we're getting from type one and type two incidents. You're going to compile all that data and try to present it first to the National Federation of Federal Employees and then in the hopes bringing that to Congress for them to take a look at it and ultimately maybe changing these contracts. 
We talked about it in our last podcast or a couple podcasts ago, how they're now using the cheapest caterer going forward. And hopefully this study can maybe change these policies. Yeah. Yeah. So it actually didn't even start out as me wanting to do this research. It started out as me just coming down and wanting to coach wildland firefighters and just how to coach guys. And I'm a nutrition coach as well. So um, I'm in school for dietetics and I'm also a nutrition coach. So I was trying to come down and, and just coach guys on how to coach their crews. And again, it just became even more apparent um, how necessary that was. And so I kind of had this idea and it's pretty recently. So it's all kind of popped off here in the last uh, few weeks. Um, and I had this idea of running some research and seeing just kind of where the current state was and what guys were getting fed on assignments. So with, with, you know, obviously with science, you have to understand and identify a problem before you can fix a problem. So right now, the idea with the research is to take hotshot crews specifically for now, and this is a multi-year project, so it's going to turn into hopefully everybody. But right now, what we're doing is we're taking hotshot crews and we are tra- having them track what they are fed by caterers on type one and two incidents. Um, so essentially what they would be doing is they'd be all the food that a caterer gives them. So not, not telling them what to eat or anything like that. They can still eat whatever they want. Um, but just tracking the food that they're fed by caterers on these incidents will give us an idea of the nutrients that they're being provided. So they're tracking all this stuff through an app and that app essentially tells me, you know, the caloric intake, the proteins, fats, carbs, and then all the micronutrients as well. So everything from, vitamin C and D all the way to B12 and, and biotin and all that stuff and niacin, everything that we need to know um, to understand where they're at as opposed to where they should be. So essentially the summer, it's a big observational research study. And the idea is to get as many crews on board as possible so we can get a better representation of the population. Um, and so with that, we're taking that research and I'm working with uh, NIFI, NFFE, uh, Max Alonzo there with the union and we're taking all this information and as much research as we can and we're compiling all together and we're presenting it to Congress and showing them, yes, there is an issue. So we're just trying to identify the problem. Um, and then after that, obviously we don't want to go to them with just like a bunch of complaints about, Hey, this is the issue and these are problems we're having. Um, we're using that and then we're going to provide them with kind of solutions to the problem. And, and obviously that's a, a long process, but yeah, the idea is to, to compile the information show them the issue, and then uh, present them with a solution to do that. And do we have any preliminary solutions that you've been thinking of, or maybe just before the data comes in, an outline of what you're looking at presenting for solutions? We know that the nutrition and wildland firefighting meals, specifically lunches, breakfasts, and even the dinners, the dinners have gotten better, but any possible solutions that you're gearing up towards going into this? Um, Yeah, so... As far as solutions go, there's that's kind of like a two-pronged – the whole thing is kind of a two-pronged approach. So the first prong, obviously, is is dealing with the and, – and this is something I've noticed the more people I've talked to is that everybody generally cares about firefighters. Like in fire, out of fire, like we all, we all generally care. Like people care about people. And so I, I don't see the people as the problem. I see the policy as the problem. And – so one of the things that you talked about on a recent show that, that popped up, and that's I think we're running into the second year of the contract, is that the requirement is for or the priority is is now incentivizing cheaper food as opposed to proximity. And so the policy 
incentivizing cheaper food incentivizes caterers to to provide food for less money, um, which is obviously a problem. That's a policy issue, and it's not an issue with the people. So the first solution would be to address the quality of the food they're providing. And with that, it's like, you know, you can't just tell them to improve everything at once. I think that's kind of unreasonable and unsustainable. And so the first target is really going to be protein. And so is there a way to improve quality of protein that we're providing firefighters? And, you know, everything down to like, can we just fix like the lunches are a great example. Can we fix these like, you know, there are sack lunches that they're just provided with a certain quantity that they have to meet. Um, you know, there's four ounces of meat that are required and a certain amount of cheese and milk and all these other things. There's a list in the specifications that they're provided that they're required to meet. So can we change those to provide some more quality? Even if we're just starting with the lunches alone, can we start with higher quality lunches? Um, so that's one method that we're going about. That's one prong to it is addressing the policy. And the second prong is reaching out to the firefighters themselves and addressing like the education portion of everything. So we don't spend, we don't spend most of our lives in fire season, right? We spend most of our lives outside of, of the really busy times. We don't spend most of our life on assignment. And so the second prong to it is the bigger picture for me. And the more is the more exciting side to me because it's working with firefighters on their actual nutrition and providing them education as to how do you educate your crews how do you feed for yourself and how do you feed other guys and and how do you do this throughout the seasons of life? And so we call that periodization. So how do we, um, how do we feed guys in the in season? How do we feed them in the off season? Um, how can we do this throughout the year and how can we, you know, educate them, um, on how to do this outside of everything, but fire season, because like, like I said, most of our life is not in fire season. So like, those are kind of the two prongs that, the policy side and the nutrition education side are the two things I'd like to really address. Very nice. And the crews that I was on, we kind of tied all of this nutrition stuff into our critical 80. We had packets that we gave out to individuals said, Hey, this is, you know, what you should gear towards when it comes to protein intake, the amino acids that you should be looking at, you know, ingesting to reduce all sorts of things, whether it's just sickness or, you know, getting rhabdo, maintaining, you know, proper balance with sodium levels. And we knew that the nutrition wasn't as good as it could be in the lunches, dinners, and breakfasts that we got. But when we started teaching people about this stuff, they would get excited and then they would get some buy-in from that and really want to participate in their, their own nutrition and health. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. It's been, and, and you know, you brought up a good point, like, people meet it and they, they hear that and they get excited about it. And all this stuff has been received really well so far. And I, there's been a little bit of skepticism as far as the research go and folks I've talked to, you know, because this, it's not, it's not necessarily new research. Like this has been done before. Um, I was talking to one of the hotshot crews and I don't want to name drop anybody here. It's not, it wasn't not a bad thing or anything, but I was talking to a hotshot crew and he was super helpful with me. One of the, one of the foremans, he was really, really helpful and pointing me in the right direction. And, providing me some, some contacts of folks to reach out to and get in touch. And he was telling me, he's like, you know, it, we're a bit, you know, skeptical because it's been done before and we've been observed before and nutrition's been looked at. And then we just didn't see that research. Uh, it's, it's hard to take it, take it somewhere. Like it really didn't go anywhere. Um, and so, yeah, there was yeah. this big 
lunch survey that they put out years ago where they were trying to track this stuff, and it was after a lot of folks complained about the quality of the meals. They did compile a lot of data, but it really didn't go anywhere at that point in time. But what's promising with this is you are getting some backing from the NFFE, mm-hmm. and hopefully that provides you know some backing and, and a backbone to bringing this to Congress and representatives and people can actually change these contracts. Yeah, for sure. That's That's one of the biggest, I think that's one of the biggest differences um, is that we do have that that voice with them right now, and we do have the ear of the people who can actually enforce those changes, um, as opposed to before. You know, doing that research, like, and and I've spoke to a few people who conducted research in in the same uh, in the in those same regards and same fields. And again, you know, they, these are people with fire backgrounds. These are people that truly care about firefighters, and they have the best intentions in mind, but they didn't have that ear, and they didn't have that that platform or that foot in the door to go talk to these people. So that, that having Max on board and having Niffy on board, that's a huge, um, huge step for us because they've been, uh, and they're doing in other regards too. So they're, they're enforcing other policies and obviously the big deal right now in the pay classifications and retention pay and everything that's going on right now, like that, that's on the forefront. Um, and, and with nutrition, it's becoming bigger and bigger. And I think we're understanding how important it is. Um, and so just having them on board is big and it's, it's definitely a long-term approach though. This isn't something that, you know, personally, as much as I'd love to see it fixed this summer, like being realistic, it's just not going to happen this summer. So I think having the understanding that it's going to be long term, you know, is is important. So if people want to be involved in this, what can they expect? Is it going to take up a bunch of their day? Can they just delegate this stuff to one crew member? And ultimately, what do they need to do and how do they participate in all this for the study? Yeah, at the end of the day, they just got to get in touch with me. Um, I'm the primary investigator for the research and pretty much essentially I'm the one doing the work for all of my personal study. I'm the one doing all the work for it. So it's pretty easy to get in touch with me. Um, and I, I don't know if you have show notes or anything like that. We can, we can leave them, but, uh, yeah, I'll drop them in the show notes, but let's talk about where they can oh, find I, it. I definitely will. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> I, good. Uh, so I'm my email. Um, you just email me and let me know that you're interested and on board, and I'll get you all the information to do it. Um, and I'll explain in a second what everything they would have to do and their responsibilities and whatnot. But my email is a jshelley2 at alaska.edu. So that's J S H E L L E Y 2 at alaska.edu. And then I'm also on Instagram too at JJ Shelley 23. And again, you know, all you got to do is email me, hit me up on Instagram through my DMS and just let me know that you're interested in the research. And right now, again, that's this summer, that's specifically for hotshot crews. Um, and, and essentially what that looks like is I am going to get with you and each individual crew is going to have like, you'll, you'll have your guys sign consent forms saying they're okay being a part of the research. And it's completely observational. It's non-invasive. I'm not changing anything you guys are doing. All you would be doing is I give you a Google Drive folder. And in that folder, you would be, there's a link to an app that I have people track uh, food through. So you would track food each day. And all you have to do, really all they have to do is because they're getting fed the same food every day from the caterer, I really just need one guy to go in and update, you know, to log what the crew is being fed. So this comes down to, one guy will need to weigh the food out and like measure it on a food scale, which would take all of about five minutes. And I have a, I have walkthrough videos on how to do everything and whatnot. So it's real simple. Um, that's the first step would be tracking food each day on, on incidents, um, for each meal. So breakfast, lunch, dinner, any snacks. And, uh, 
after that. So you track the food and then I just want pictures of all the food as well. So you put a picture in the folder, um, for the fire that you were on, and then I'll have you like track what fires you were on as well. So what I can do is I can go into this folder and say, Oh, you were on the you know station fire and I can go to the station fire and then I can go in there and see what you had that day. I can look at the picture of the meal and then I can go into chronometer, which is the app that I use. And uh, I can see all the nutrients for that day and, and what that meal consists of. So it's pretty easy. All literally, literally is just tracking food. Um, and again, that's not, uh, not changing the way they eat it all. They can still have all the snacks they want and any, any other food they want. I just want to know what, uh, what food they're being provided. Question I have is, are you seeing a big difference between what you were fed in the military and what you're getting in the wildland fire world? Honestly, uh, there's not a huge difference. I would, I would actually say that, um, it, it really depends. So from the infantry, um, we just like hotshot crews, we pretty much just ate MREs all the time, uh, when we didn't have access, we don't have camps and stuff like that. So when you're, whether you're in country or on a field op or something like that, you don't get a fire camp. Um, you don't have hot food flown out to you. Like every now and then we get the logistics team that would come in. Um, that was composed of other Marines and they would cook, uh, kind of, they would essentially be like hot MREs. They would cook for us. Um, yeah. So the food quality is also not there, um, in the military. So especially in the Marine Corps, there's not the budget for it. And so that's another, you know, passion of mine is, is maybe applying the same things that we do in the forest service to applying it to the DOD as well and helping them. Um, and that, that part, you know, from a nutrition coach standpoint, the clients I love to work with are firefighters and military guys because they're the ones I connect with so well. And I understand that the, the quality is not there. So in answer to your question, um, they're not different really at all. They're not vastly different. Um, especially when it comes to hotshot crews and infantry, the, the nutrition is very, very similar. So MREs are, <laughs> MREs are primary there as well. So if we have folks who are interested in participating in this, and I know it's understood that this isn't something that we're going to have totally figured out by midsummer, even late summer, but are the folks who are participating, do they have a chance to look at this data? When will they have a chance to look at this data? And is there any follow-up that they need to pay attention to once you have all of this compiled? When, when will people have access to this information? Absolutely. Yeah, they, they would be the first ones to have access to it when I'm done um, publishing. So the whole running everything through a committee and, and publishing, that that definitely takes some time. And I'm not altogether familiar with how long this one will take because it's just observational. But it is a human – like there are humans involved in this study, so it does take a little bit longer to get published. As far as the actual data, like before it's published, I, I'm going to provide that to crews. So they have what they track and then I will go through and I will do everything and I'll, you know, do all the, the math regarding what was going on in the averages for everything and, and what they're getting. Um, and, and a part of this after everything going into the off season comes with me, um, helping them understand what their results mean. So they, you know, they go through the season, they do their assignments, they track everything and they're, they're on board with it all. And they, they, uh, they do everything I need them to do for the research. A part of that comes to, Hey, now that we're done with the season, let me help you guys real quick and like coach you through what the off season for you looks like. And so taking that information from the fire season and understanding this is where you were, let's get you here. Um, and, and providing them that education is, is a part of, it's not necessarily part of the research, but it's a part of what they would get if they work with me. 
Um, that's just, again, that's a passion of mine that I want to help fix. So the more, and I'll have the attention of them at the time. So the more we can do to help that, the better. But as far as the actual research goes and the publishing, that will definitely take a minute just because it is, you know, you run it through committees and, and publishing itself does take time. Um, so hopefully <laughs> as quick as possible, but I don't have a definite answer of when it would be after the season. I think it's great. And people who will participate, I think it's promising that maybe they'll carry this information over into their personal lives once the shoulder seasons and even the off season kick in. It it can help uh, stave off, you know, degeneration and, you know, loss of any sort of progress that you've made during the fire season or even preseason and carrying this type of diet and understanding of, of what nutrition is into your personal life can have a massive effect in both uh, personal, physical, and mental health going forward. So I think that's a great aspect of it all. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. You know, I, I tell people that it's, I try to compare it to money. I think money is a good way to compare um, nutrition to, and you talk about like, it's similar to you taking a big, let's say you take a big vacation or you make a big purchase just because you make a big purchase and you look at, you don't just look at that and say, well, I got to spend a bunch of money. I'm just not even going to save up for anything right now. Um, you know, I'm just not going to, I'm just not even going to care. Um, what you do though, is you budget, you know, you say, Oh, I got this big expense coming up. What I really need to do is I need to budget and save up my money so I can afford that big expense. And looking at fire season from a nutrition standpoint is, is really similar. So you have this big expense coming up on your body and you really got a budget for it. You know, you got to plan for it and develop those good uh, nutrition habits and stuff like that in the off season and just take care of yourself. So when that time comes that you got to push your body like that and spend that amount of money on your body and, and that amount of, uh, you know, expenditure, you can afford to do that because you take care of yourself and because you have those good habits. So I think that's a good part of the education that uh, will come out of this as well. Hey, I think that's a great analogy because ultimately you do have to budget what you can and cannot intake and how that's going to affect you down the line when it comes to your nutrition. When it comes to folks and, and like your your capacity of how much data you can bring in, you know, are we trying to get as many people as we can in this study? And ultimately, do you have any last comments uh, before we close this up? Yeah, yeah. I am willing to work with as many crews as possible, as many want to participate. Um, right now we have four that have reached out to me and told me that they're on board with it and they're excited for it. And those, you know, to those guys that are skeptical about the research, like I totally get it. You know, I get that people have come and, and done research before and it really hasn't gone anywhere. But what I can tell you is the exact same thing that Max Alonzo told us when he came to talk to us at uh, Goldfield here in Mesa. You know, he said the more guys that we get on board and the more voices that we get, in this regard, the better chance we have of actually getting heard and getting our foot in the door. Um, and with, like I said, with science in particular, with the research in particular, the more guys I can get on board, the more I can make it representative of the population. Just with four crews, I can't, I can't go there and say, this is representative of all hotshot crews and this is what they're getting fed. But the more guys I get on board and the more, you know, let's say I get 20 crews that work with me. It's, it's like, that's 20 hotshot crews. And that is, of that, you know, that's a huge chunk of the population. And that is representative. You know, we're talking 400 guys, like that's representative of the population. So I can take that and say for sure that this is what's happening. And it's a lot more convincing, you know, than, than 50 or 60 guys. And 
obviously I appreciate those guys that have reached out already, but the more we can get, yeah, definitely the more we can get, the better that this is a, this is going to be in the long term. Well, hopefully we get a bunch of people to participate. Again, reach out to JJ Shelley if you want to participate in this. Let's get him as much data as possible and see where this whole thing goes. I really appreciate it. I think this is a great thing to do. And hey, I know we've done studies like this before, but now we have an individual in JJ that may get the NFFE backing, which gives a backbone to this data, and and politicians and people in Washington, D.C. are already listening to these organizations when it comes to certain things with benefits and pay, and they kind of have the ball rolling on all of that. So I think it's fantastic, and uh, yeah, man, I really appreciate you coming on and spreading the word. And if you're out there and you want to participate in this, please just reach out and get a hold of JJ. Let's be in touch, and I'd love to see where this goes. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Be in touch. I'm a uh, just like everybody else, you know. I'm working this season. I'm I'm stoked. I think it's going to be a busy one. We're already, you know, we just finished up an RX burn yesterday, and uh, we're already um, getting real busy down here in Region Three. So. I'm stoked for the year, but I'll definitely be in touch with you and I'll let you know how it goes. And I'm excited for, uh, yeah, I'm excited to see where it goes and, and what we get out of it. I think it's going to be a big thing. Well, hey, thanks, man, for coming on. We'll shotgun this information out and see if we can't get some people on board and get some data. Yeah, thanks, Tim. I appreciate that, man. Have a good one. Hey, you too. I have traveled this year over all the United States, through the Alleghenies, the White Mountains, and the Catskills. The Rockies and the Bitterroot Mountains, Cascades, the Coast Range, and the Sierras. I have traveled... Hey, I'd just like to say thank you again to all the paid Substack subscribers. It allows us to do everything that we do here at the Hotshot Wake Up. There is a link in the description below to thehotshotwakeup.substack.com. Once you're there, just click on subscribe if you want to support us. It's just $6, and again, it supports everything we do from the donations, the giveaways, just maintaining the ability to continue to do this sort of thing and get all this information out to everybody out there. We have a tremendous amount of free subscribers and followers, thousands and thousands and thousands of people. But at this point in time, we still have just that small group of paid Substack subscribers that are providing the ability for us to continue to get all this information out to everybody that listens. I know we have a huge audience, a massive readership on the Substack. So thanks again. If you are one of those free subscribers, I appreciate you sharing and liking everything that we do and bringing traction and vision to the product that we put out there. So thank you very much. As always, contact someone that you haven't talked to in a while, see how they're doing, get some exercise, eat those quality calories, hydrate, stretch, Get the rest that you need because you need the recovery to be better. But when you get up, you got to get it done. Let me
Mean, mean, 